i will i will uh, shrinivas ji take up uh, from the question that you have raised see uh, uh, it's easier for me because i i want to just round it off and take to the the second part of uh, the conversation to uh, go in this direction so the question was see, we started off saying that uh, why uh, take uh, western culture seriously because it began with the question that balu introduced you know uh, how does the world look if we look from our uh, way now from there we have come and why it is important to study uh, western culture and we also reversed it you know to understand western culture how it is important to look at uh, indian culture now in this comparative project lot of issues have been sort of discussed in terms of language experience the question of you know uh, political theory all these things have uh, sort of addressed so in which for example of the questions that have been sent almost 60% of the questions have answers there now we can i mean they they have to find them they are available they can get back to us we can get into conversation later so now in the last part the question came okay so far we under we we uh, spend more time thinking about uh, europe and now let's focus on what indian texts were talking about the uh, raja varna varna sankara even some people even have posted this question about uh, this what is this idea of iha and para i think i mean these questions put together brings us to the point where uh, it shows in which direction the research program is going to go further that is the second part that we wanted to sort of discuss from uh, where pick our thread so this is what the kind of uh, quick wrap up that i wanted to do so that you know we we can go in this direction but before balu could respond shrinivas ji you i think you have been deprived of an opportunity to ask question you have a lot of question so i think you should flag your questions first and then from there we can uh, go for uh so uh, uh, of course uh, somebody is pointing out that the question about raja and praja needs to be addressed i'm sure that will be addressed uh, but yes i also wanted to raise one uh, question uh, thank you for giving an opportunity of course uh, uh, i could understand uh, the discussion about language and terminology is only to point out that certain words uh, have a, a deeper uh, cultural contexts and they're more or less like terminology which carry a lot of meaning and uh, it, it is only being brought to people's consciousness that one has to use those words carefully and knowledge consists in understanding the cultural context of those words and not just using them as a replacement for something that they understand uh, you know locally uh, so the same holds uh, for sanskrit terms as well because of the loss of transmission of knowledge and the loss of the context in which uh, the sanskrit terms were used uh, uh, because of uh, the political social changes that have happened in the country we have to also pay attention to what the specific words really mean to be able to have access to the knowledge that these words uh, are referring to now this part of it i could understand but my question is that uh so when you are talking about colonial uh, consciousness um and when you are claiming that there is a, a break in transmission of knowledge you are surely saying that only for a small section of the people uh and not the whole population uh you know of the country um so you know what is this colonial consciousness how does it spread what is the medium of you know infecting people uh, in across the country now um 
and when let's say the shringeri matha says that they've had unbroken transmission of the guru uh, parampara of course you address this issue in uh, the uh, the fourth chapter of you know, what it means to be indian book um so are you claiming that their claim is false that they don't actually have uh, an unbroken uh, a tradition of uh, a teaching uh, in the matha um similarly for those people who have probably never spoken a word of english uh, language in their lives uh and uh, probably don't deal with the uh, the politics and day to day uh, politics but are completely within a, a frame of knowledge that they limited limit themselves to are you claiming that they are also afflicted by this colonial consciousness you ask me you want me to start yeah. the conversation okay first uh, i want to make a remark about the last two sessions and about the coming session see in a way because it was a retrospective the last two sessions it meant indicating the different domains and different disciplines we are touching upon or investigating into there are two ways of doing it one is to say try and summarize our results it faces a difficulty that it's it's difficult to understand the first thing we can say second is it becomes a dry preaching sermon lectures and that is not what we need today because this is a second element to that prospect namely how do we go forward so in a way we have been at least i have been for uh, trying to indicate the domains and in fact you touched on many domains but in a light way that is trying to make weak attempts at jokes there's a reason for that because now i want to shift the discussion to a different level much more serious not that we are not serious before much more focused than the last two sessions now it will become a bit heavy because of that but it's my hope that the shifting the character level of discussion leaves you only with this idea that there is serious research occurring in multiple domain in multiple domains incorporating many dimensions to understand which you have to do some serious work yourself you will not understand physics or chemistry physics or all the domains of physics some domains of physics by a summary of the story in 10 minutes 5 minutes 15 minutes and so on all we can hope is to realize how broad how big how vast the domains of knowledge are and the best way to do it is to lighten it and that is the first two sessions because it's prospect it is retrospective when you look back so i try to play the role of the grandfather as what he always looking back and telling how it was in his time prospective is about your future so we're going to go a little bit 
uh, to another plane, much more serious, much more focused. I hope you'll be with us. So with this, that is going to give the tone to the how I'm going to answer and respond to Srinivas. Let's begin with the question. Uh, let's begin with the following remark. Our research includes colonial consciousness. But there's only one element in, in the research we're doing. It's not the focus or the goal of the research to do research on colonial consciousness. Why do I say it? Because one of the questions that participants raised is to say that our research takes Said's story further. And there were some questions regarding Said's story and our story. Actually, Australia has very little to do with science. In fact, almost nothing. We are not telling a story of Orientalism. In fact, we have problems with that story. Very serious problems. But Sai did something good, some good work in the sense that he tried to show that the way West looked at Arab countries, basically, but today it's all countries, exhibits a certain kind of pattern in this country. He did not say what the pattern in the description was, except say it is Eurocentric, racist, and so on, uh, misogynist, etc., etc. And he did not tell us why that pattern comes into existence. He didn't tell us why it sustains itself. He did not tell us how it reproduces itself. He didn't tell us how it expands. In other words, we do not have any knowledge of what Orientalism is, it's just a word. Same thing for things like Eurocentrism. Western social sciences are Eurocentric. What exactly is being talked about? How do you make it what? India-centric. I mean, is it possible to say physics is Eurocentric? If it is not possible to do that, but it is possible to do that for knowledge about human beings, then it follows necessarily that you cannot have knowledge of human beings. Because knowledge is knowledge. If you have knowledge about human beings, it applies to the Americans, to the Europeans, to the British, to the Africans, to Indians, and so on. So either we have knowledge, in which case calling it Eurocentric doesn't tell us anything. It's like saying, you know, uh, Einstein's theory uh, emerged in Germany, therefore it's Germanocentric or Eurocentric. No, it could be okay, fine. So the problem is to, to, to speak about Orientalism, Eurocentrism, racism, misogynism, sexism is characteristic of Eurocentric discourse. It will get you a job in Columbia University. Sure. But it won't give you any knowledge about human beings. And the first and the most important thing, which in my introduction I spoke about, is that our research is following, tracking now, in the root of now, and develops knowledge, and can be tested exactly the way we just mentioned science. The only examples we have of knowledge. So, it's important to know this because this is related to the question, what is colonial consciousness? Because people think when I speak of, or when we speak, or the research program speaks about colonial consciousness, 
We are talking about how Indians and colonized subjects experience, feel, face in the world. No, colonial consciousness is also how colonial masters think, experience about the world, which means colonization impacts not just the colonial subjects, it does it in one way, but also colonial masters, which does it in another way. So colonial consciousness in this sense, that what we are talking about, what we are uh, doing research on, is about how colonization affects, in a very deep sense, everybody in this world, the master and the subjects, including. So, therefore, what is colonial consciousness, if you, in simple terms, if you want, is how we, in the last three, four hundred years, in different ways, we are looking at the world, describing it, working in it, changing it, experiencing it. And what is the result? Well, all we have to do is look at today's world. 21st century, we have more poverty and hunger than before. After the Second World War, 21st century, the world is full of wars. Suffering is increased. Aggression is increased. Pain is increasing. Poverty is increasing. Disease is increasing. At a time when in the 21st century, we are supposed to be developing knowledge, science, technology, and I don't know what else. Today, how people are reacting and talking about COVID-19 is an example of that. The alternative news, the alternative facts, post-truth world is an example of that. This is colonial consciousness. That's what we're living. So instead of, and what, what does it mean? It's in Indian terms, in simple terms. What colonial consciousness has done is this. It has elevated ignorance to the level of knowledge on the one side and on the other side done something which we really call a jnana in Indian traditions which in certain Advaita tradition is called papa which is presenting truth as knowledge we use the word bullshit when we use it, we mean that. When truth is presented as knowledge, then you're bullshitting. Why? Because if truth is presented as knowledge, what happens is truth prevents the emergence of knowledge. It's not a theoretical claim. Take a simple example, my favorite example. I suppose you have children. So let's say you send them to university. Uh, let's say they want to teach you about anthropology, sociology, whatever, of a people, say India or Belgium. Say take India. And your child is interested, you are interested, and you go and send your child a lot of money to a university like Jane. Now, here is what happens in jail. It's not happening, eh? so just I'm giving you an example. 
So what does a JNU professor do? Albanese uh, College. So he'll give you a telephone book of Delhi City and asks your child to memorize and this exam. Sociology. They give you telephone books of all Indian cities. Make a child learn it, meaning memorize it by heart, exam. And you ask your child, what are you learning? He says, urban anthropology, a social anthropology in India. So what do you learn there? Well, we are learning, memorizing telephone books. Ask yourself the following question. Would you think JU is teaching knowledge to your child? Would you be willing to pay money for your child to sit and learn telephone books? And practical experience, that's computational word, ICT must be taught. So your children are taught how to produce telephone books. Why would you object? i tell you why you should not object. Is not every single statement in a telephone book true? They are teaching your child truths. Why are you objecting? In other words, what do we see there? This is a silly example. But you, if you go deeper, into social sciences, anywhere in the world. This is what they teach. Partial truths, some truths. <coughs> but they are like telephone books. Or I, we call them factoids. So, teaching truth, if that is what we want an education system to do, if truth is so important, well then, this university, Jane, you're teaching telephone book production of telephone books is teaching truth and therefore it's giving knowledge. So if you're for truth, if you say you're searching for truth, surely that must satisfy you. But it doesn't. Satisfies nobody in fact. So raise the next question. Is search for truth important or not? Satyanvesan, searching for truth. Here's a strange, look at the strange situation we are in. If you look at the television and read the newspapers, in two countries, at least in two countries in the world, the top leadership is described as maniacal liars. Donald Trump, there is called a fact checking machine. No, not a machine, fact-checking human being. Every day following the tweets of Donald Trump to note, it, to note down how many lies he has told. He is the, one of the greatest liars on earth. Boris Johnson is no different. Exactly the same. Everybody, call, I'm not calling it, they're saying it. They are liars. They continuously tell the truth, uh, lies. They don't tell the truth. So two cultures, you see, two countries, part of the Western culture, 
which says truth is most important thing on earth, elects, supports, enjoys absolute liars as a political leadership. So much so that the dictionaries talk about a post-truth world. It's not part of dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary. Alternative facts, alternative news, fake news. Oh, nobody seems to have a problem. Because if you do, in America, you are a Democrat anti-Trump. You have it in England, that's because you're anti-Johnson, anti-conservatives here with the Labour. How come the population is not shocked by this? That lying is the most supreme value in a culture which claims, Western culture, this is not limited to England and the, or America, which claims we must search for truth, science search for truth, what is going on? What is it that we want our children to learn when they send them to schools and colleges? Learn truth. Everybody today in India more and more talks about Satya Anvesha, Satya Mevajayate, and so on and so on and so on. But actually in our languages, if you look carefully, that's not what we want. Jnanarjane. We want knowledge. What are you doing? I'm searching for jnana, not for truth. Not for truth. Because what is truth? Sentences about the world. That's true. That's the only thing I mean, true or false. Science is not a set of true sentences. Please take a scientific theory and see how many true sentences exist. Simple, simple thing. Even go to Euclid's geometry, which you have learnt in school. Take a theorem, look at the proofs, and tell me how many true sentences there are in that theorem. So, physics, same thing, logic, same thing. So, so any science we go to, it doesn't consist of sentences which are true. Half the sentences are not understandable if you don't have the technical definitions and theorems proved and iterations of the theorems. You want to understand? This is knowledge. One step, I'm going to answer the question. I'm taking one step back. A search for truth is so important. Supreme value, according to all philosophers here, yeah. we value truth, epistemic value of truth. Nobody, no philosopher asks the question, why do you believe in truth? Except one fellow, Paul Guy, Nietzsche, he went crazy. He asked, why truth? Why not untruth? But it doesn't matter, forget Nietzsche. If you say, why do you believe in it? It's true. Ah, yeah, that's okay. As there's a reason to believe. Now, there's no justification required. If it's true, it's fine. It is the ultimate justification for accepting some statement as about being a being about the world. But 
there is a strange thing. If you know the Bible, especially the New Testament Bible, the Gospels, Roman prefect Pilatus, or Pilate, as you call it, asked a very strange question to Jesus after answering. Question was, what is truth? Wait for one second. Think. Pilate is an intelligent man, administrator. He knows two plus two is equal to four. He knew that Rome had an emperor. So he knew, therefore, if somebody were to come and uh, the Jews had no king. If somebody had come and told Pilate, Pilatus that two plus two is equal to four, he would say, ah, what rubbish. That's not true, he would have said. In that case, why did he ask the question, what is truth to Jesus? And read Jesus' response, go to the Bible and take a look at it. What, what was Pilate trying to say? What were they talking about? Because you see, in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, the Semitic religions, don't call them Abrahamic religions, please. They are Semitic religions. <coughs> God is the truth. So searching for truth is important. Only value to human beings, because the only reason to exist on earth is to seek God, Christian God, Jewish God, Muslim God, or biblical God. So searching for truth was important and primary because of that. So truth has a value because of that. And when Christianity begins to go backward in a culture, like this the case today, the idea of truth is important remains. But it's of no significance. Look at UK, look at USA, look at Europe. Liars or elected and popular. Not truth, whatever that might mean. So when you therefore send your child to you to teach telephone books, you would be right in saying, look, I'm not sending my children to learn truth. I'm teaching, I'm sending them to have knowledge. That is India. That's Indian culture. Not truth. And as I said, I think in the chapters, you must realize, we are supposed to have 33,000 crore gods. And I always wonder who the hell counted it. But let's say somebody did count 33,000 crores. Let's say we have them. So we've got for almost devatas, uh, so for everything. But there is no God or God, it's the truth. Well, for, but for knowledge, Saraswati. Not God and God is the truth. We don't have it. For knowledge, yes. What do we respect? Knowledge. So there is no Satyanvation, that's Bakwas. There is Gyananjan, search for knowledge. Now why is this important? Well, let's go back to JNU example. What is preventing your child from learning knowledge? Truth. Telephones, true statements. 
Just set of true statements in geography doesn't teach your child about geography at all. That is why we are taught to learn things by heart. Colonial consciousness, to answer Srinivas' question, has, among other things, this subordinate knowledge to truth. Subordinate. India, it's the other way around. Truth is subordinated to knowledge. Knowledge is always true. But not everything that's true is knowledge. We know that from experience. But everything that's knowledge is true. There can be no such thing as false knowledge. But truth is not always knowledge. Not every truth is knowledge. Therefore, Indian culture said, we seek knowledge. And they realized, and they saw that Whereas ignorance is the precondition for truth, for learning, for knowledge. Truth will block the emergence of knowledge if truth is presented as knowledge. If telephone guide is presented as knowledge to a student, you will pull your child out of that university, top elite university, because that's not knowledge. Truth. Preventing knowledge is what we call bullshit, milder term in Hindi, bakwas. And that is what is dominating in colonial consciousness. So, that is why when they write about India, when they write about Europe, we talk so much bakwas. It is not a question of meaning of words. It's not a question of technical words. There are words in, let's use the word, theories about the world, about human beings, that is a part of knowledge. Issue is not one of translation of those words. Issue is one of acquiring that knowledge. So the tragedy of the last 300, 400 years of colonialism is in colonial world, Truth begins to block more and more emergence of knowledge. Truth is presented as knowledge. Colonial subjects, amongst other things, we come and tell in our universities. We tell this because. Go to sociology department, go to philosophy department, go to any social science department, ethics. In India, Bakwas is sold as knowledge. One more example before I round off the answer to that question. Consider. We think we all know what ethics and morality is, right? Intuitively, at least. We think we know it. We think we know what, for example, otherwise we wouldn't speak about justice, injustice, justice, social justice. We wouldn't be speaking about that. Moral, immoral, we wouldn't be speaking about. We think we know all these things. And, in fact, we think we know what it means in English, and in German, and in French, and in Dutch, and Now, what philosophers and moralists, especially logicians, have done in the last 25 years is this. 
what exactly, when do we recognize a statement as an ethical or a moral statement? They said, when we use the word ought, moral ought, it is a moral statement. It's a value statement. So the next step was, all right, what does ought, what are its logical and semantic properties of this ought? So there is a huge domain, very interesting, called deontic logic. Deontic referring to means one of the meanings of it is moral or ethical. So logic of ethics, logic of morality, deontic logic. And they started analyzing the properties of words like you, it is forbidden, you, it is recommended, you, it is compulsory or obligatory. So what are the properties of these words? And so I have developed. Today, there is a consensus about it, 40 years of research. Why is this important to us? Suppose you come with that to look at Indian languages. Sanskrit to Bhojpuri. We discover something very, 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 very strange. There is no way on earth, not just in India, so all of Asia, are we able to express the following statement? You ought not to kill. Moral ought. They cannot say it. How will we say? You should not kill. How do we know that? Very simple. Take two sentences. You should not drink that water. It's not ought. It says you should not because you're going to get sick. You should not, you, and you should not kill. Sentences are exactly the same. You cannot differentiate. There's no way of differentiating. You should not sleep with your head to the north, I was told as a child, because if you do, Ganesha is still looking for a human head. Okay, because he's got an elephant head, so if you sleep with your head to the north, just cut it off and he'll take us. So don't sleep with your head to the north. I believed it, of course. You should not sleep. Same thing. You should not drink the glass of water. You should not kill. You should respect your parents. Every single, I don't know many Indian languages, I know about five, six. I don't know many Asian languages. In fact, I hardly outside of India, I don't know uh, any Asian language because when I speak in Chinese, nobody understands it except myself. So that apart, here is my claim. Not one single Asian language, including Indian, would be able to say the following sentence. You ought not to kill. You should not drink water. Two different sentences, impossible. What follows from that? We cannot talk about ethics and morality the way Europeans, Muslims and the Jews speak. We cannot. Linguistically, it's not possible. And that is why the British said Indians are immoral. Because they didn't find any such sentences in a text. Does it mean we have no ethics? Of course not. What does it mean then? It means what we think ethics and morality today, what are genuine intellectuals and St. Stephen intellectuals and newspaper people write about and so on, they use the English language without understanding what it means. You will not understand moral art unless and until you do a deep study of deontic logic. Then you say it is a formal concept, but you can't apply it to your actions. 
in your language you can't so you don't understand and yet to come across an Indian who is able to understand properly an ethical text including the best ethical thinkers India has produced whether it is a Pratabhanu Mehta or somebody else they don't understand it's not there's nothing wrong with it brilliant people intelligent people nice people but a language doesn't because why doesn't a language allow it that's not an experience that's not how we talk about ethics we talk in a different way about ethics this moral art where does that come from the God who is outside space and time following his commands is what it means to be ethical. We, our gods, whatever the, the gods are not, they're all in this cosmos. They are not outside space and time. And they do not command us. Nobody commands. And that is why everybody found our gods very immoral. Imagine Krishna, yeah? 16,000 women. If you are scientifically minded, sit down and calculate. How many times should you sleep with that with a woman, same woman, 16,000? How many times should you sleep? How many orgasms? For how many days? You will be shocked by the discovery. Oh my God. Is it possible? Krishna is a liar. Yeah. It, he's, a, he's a thief. Steals butter. Tells lies to his mother. Have you, have you eaten the butter, Krishna? I look at my mouth and gives Vishwarupa Darshana. So poor Yashoda is totally flipped. She doesn't know what the hell is going on. She has forgotten her question whether he stole butter or not. I also would be. I mean, uh, what the hell? So our God, whoever it is, Shiva, Ishwara, Vishnu, Brahma is an embodiment. But who is Saraswati? These are Adevatas. And how did they describe Adevatas? Immoral. It's not that we didn't know that. You know how I was taught? Hey, this is how God's devas behave. So, human beings should not imitate them. That's how I was taught. In this Semitic religion, with the God outside space-time, God is perfectly ethical, perfectly moral. Therefore, obeying his commandments is to be ethical and moral. That's the language of ethics and morality of the last 2000 years, before Aristotle, after Aristotle and so on. But use it. We write tracts on it. We write articles on it. We teach our children that in schools and colleges and universities. But we don't know what we're talking about. It is not possible to know that. What are we teaching students? Bakwas or Western ethics? This is colonial culture. True trumps knowledge in us. Truth is subordinated to knowledge. Choose what you want. Choose truth. You see what the world has, what's happened to the world in the last 400 years. Even before that, in the, middle, in the medieval Europe as well. Truth, knowledge. You choose knowledge. 
Well, that's what Buddha tried to do. That's what Shankara tries to do. That is what the Upanishads try to do. As they the means, not esoteric knowledge. People, there is no such thing as esoteric knowledge. Knowledge must be present. Knowledge should be capable of being tested. Knowledge must be capable of being understood. There can be no such thing as esoteric knowledge. Supramundane knowledge, not possible. If it's knowledge, it's not possible. There is no supramundane physics or esoteric physics. Even metaphysics is not esoteric. This is where we are. This, if we want to go further, break away from colonial consciousness, some people have raised the question, how do you do it? There is only one possibility, which is what Indians discovered 3,000 years ago and continue for at least one and a half thousand years later, further. How do you get out of this? Only through knowledge. That means follow the route which would lead you, which could lead you to knowledge, which would lead you to knowledge. Therefore, I began today's talk by saying, if you look back at the route I have taken, I said, it is following the route that knowledge should take. And I said, if you want to judge what other people are saying, including me, Use those criteria, because if not salvation, that's left for special souls who obey the biblical God, not to us, or moksha is not salvation in any sense of the word. So if you want to test what you're told about India, Indian culture, Indian people, not just them, because I said, asking question about who is India, who, what it means to be, what it, what it is to be an Indian, will give us a surprising answer in so by laying the foundation of social science. So, knowledge is the only possibility we have. Not just you and me and Indians, all of us, humankind, is the only route to break out of colonial consciousness. There are other aspects that he is raising. What about people who don't have English education and so on? That will take us to a different aspect. There is namely colonial consciousness of the colonized. We'll talk about it if it is necessary, but first get the general picture. Colonial consciousness is ignorance, preventing emergence of knowledge, truth parading as knowledge, and the only way out of it is through knowledge. Anybody wants to add anything? I, I just wanted to add another small element uh, of the uh, question that Srinivas Ji has raised. He has taken the example of Shrungeri Matha and mm -hmm. uh, these are, uh, what to say, pure form of transmission, etc. See, I can't comment about Shrungeri Matha because I don't know about the Shrungeri Patshala. But I wanted to actually outline some general picture of the kind of ignorance that we have about what Islamic colonialism has done to us and what are its repercussions. And I would go back to one of the uh, sort of less uh, studied essays of Sheldon Pollock. So what Sheldon Pollock does is that he had a project on uh, Indian knowledge systems. And he uh, gets the survey of number of domains, starting from, you know, <clears throat> various disciplines like Dharma Shastra to Mimamsa to Jyotishya. He takes eight different domains and he looks at the number of influential texts that have been produced between 10th century to 15th century and 15th century onwards. And 
it's interesting in these eight domains that he conducts the survey there is hardly any significant text that comes even in domains like mimamsa etc etc for 500 years there is absolute dark no new text in these discipline in fact he goes on to say for example people like appaya dikshita when he comes back and picks up certain writing on mimamsa here to start from where it was stopped at 10th century so there is this question what happened in that 500 years and why nothing has been produced in the domains that he has been sketching i mean now we have more information because some of the students who deal with balu for instance they looked at the text in the domain of vyakarana see one of the important thing that they were recognizing is between 10th century to 13th century if you look at the text of vyakarana the kind of issues the kind of themes the kind of arguments that comes they are completely different one could see the nature of the text themselves being different not in vyakarana now they are coming up with more more and example uh, with this so this is exactly the period where islam had a huge impact on india now one of the most important part that has happened for that period in time and india certainly you know islamic colonialism has damaged the nature of transmission and it also has brought in certain elements that balu was just pointing out that these new ways of talking about you know uh, say for example the obsession towards so suddenly we all now talk about krupa as some positive term and there is also another way of talking about say satyanveshana comes into being by 16th century people start talking about satyanveshana there is completely new way of talking by our ancestors by 15th 16th century 13th century it start emerging so there is something extraordinary that has happened in the period of 500 years and we seem to be absolutely ignorant so when people respond to balu uh, when he writes about manu or anything else they say ha ah, he has not taken into consideration the commentators but there is a huge damage that was already beginning to emerge in that period that has not been noticed so the quick summary of what i wanted to say is that even though one would want to say that there are things for example vedapata has been transmitted ghana jata i mean there is some ways that some people has retained it and there has been some traditions which have been uh, continuing that does not necessarily guarantee that our uh you know traditions have been transmitting uninterrupted without any changes the traditions in the same way that was existing you know you know 1000 years before so this is something that we need to you don't need to buy mystery you have to just go and do a survey of the material available in front of us think about it very seriously automatically it becomes glaringly visible so that's what i wanted to add it up to the story of what balu has just now said and a slightly lighter way but equally seriously think about the same shloka of manu satyam bruyat priyam bruyat na bruyat satyam priyam priyam cha nanatam bruyat esha dhanam sanatam look at the first two sentences satyam bruyat priyam bruyat strange whatever that priyam what priyam leave it at that but look at it if you tell truth in some sense it must be pleasing not psychologically pleasing not flattering that's not that's not money is talking about but why is that important truth has a goal why tell truth is an important question in the indian tradition that's why he can say nabruya satyam apriyam that means 
shut up. That's not what he is saying. Preem to Nandrutam Ruyatas, just because somebody likes it, don't go lying. Of course. But first part, Satyam Bruya, Preem Bruya. But nobody has said that about Dhyan. As somebody was just making, Nahikyani Nesadrisham. It comes in, in comes in Gita. Meaning what? There's nothing that we can see like knowledge. Not truth. Nothing like that. And that's why to this day, I was talking to some of my Sanskrit friends the other day. See if, if this thing will also appeal to you. Just for a moment, uh, take away your moral revulsion or ethical revulsion about Atyachara on women. Just, just forget that for a minute. Just for a second. Okay. Now, you hear somebody say, there was Atyachara on Lakshmi. Meaning? He just used the money to drink, to play, gamble. That's, that's, that's absolute Atyachara on Lakshmi. And Lakshmi is called Tanchala. She sleeps with many men. Never can she go some. That's one of the properties of Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth. So, say, you will never say to somebody who's, let's say, uh, misspending uh, money or that crazy fellow, you don't say, you're doing Atyachara to Lakshmi. You don't say that. All right. How about Atyachara Parvati? Actually, we don't know what it would mean. Atyachara Parvati, what does it consist of? Don't know. You just don't know. But begin with a smaller one. If you're brought up as, a, as an Indian, you're doing apachara to Saraswati. Oh, what? Suppose you go one step further. That is Atyachara on Saraswati. You are absolutely shattered. Not because it's Atyachara. Three, Lakshmi, Parvati, Saraswati. Saraswati, even Apachara, we can't tolerate. Especially those who have been brought up. Go and ask those those students who have been brought up in Gurukala, for example. The best, the, the, the best way to, 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 to make them feel terrible is you doing Apachara to Saraswati. They, they, they don't know what to do. They won't even use the word Akyatna, but if you use it, it's the most horrible thing they can do. That is because of what Saraswati is. She is the body of knowledge. That's why as children, we don't do it anymore in India, perhaps the way I was brought up. If by accident my feet touched a piece of paper or stepped on newspaper, we do that. I mean, I, I was taught that. You know, sometimes when I'm in India, I do that. And they say, what the hell am I doing? That's my whole thing. I've been brought up that way. But this respect, this love, this affection, this veneration is only for knowledge, nothing else. Not for wealth, not for political power, not for status, not for anything. That's why. When we say that man is a jnani, you respect. Vidvamsa, I am not so sure. Pandita, you must be careful. That's why we also distinguish between a pandita and a guru.
point I want to make to you is simply this. This is what knowledge is in our culture, not truth, knowledge. So look into your own experience. This is to relate to language, knowledge, and experience. Look at the way, look at the way you talk, look at the way you've been brought up. And imagine, don't forget one thing when you think of Sarasvati. Daughter of Brahma. A Brahma has an incestuous relationship to Saraswati, but plays absolutely no role. We know that. But it plays no role at all. Not because incest is a good thing in India. Father sleeping with a daughter is the best thing. Nobody says that. Nobody does. Well, not nobody does it. I'm sure there are some people who do it. Oh, fine. But Saraswati, when you look at Saraswati, these are not associations that are made. Even though we know the story. No. You touch paper, you step on paper with your feet, with your foot. You do this. Sometimes you even go and touch the paper and do it. Hey, Saraswati, I say you can't step on her. That's how we used to talk. This is Saraswati. This is, because it's knowledge. She's bodied of knowledge. Second, you can control Lakshmi if you're a very rich man. Vishnu can direct Lakshmi. And her stories, not just Vishnu, others. Parvati is the same thing. But what is forbidden, what is unthinkable in Indian tradition is that you can control Saraswati. You can have authority over Saraswati. Not possible. Not possible. Any other word is possible. This one, impossible. This is knowledge to us. Question for colonial consciousness is this. Why have we given this up so quickly, so easily? And what is it you're teaching when we teach our children in universities, which is a Jnana Mandira, allegedly? What do we teach? Jnana? I don't know if Jnana must teach Bhagavad Gita, yeah? Physics is Jnana also. So is mathematics, so is biology, so is genetics, and so on and so on and so on. This is India, this is our culture. And we are not there. This is what has been in some senses transmitted, so there's been only damage in transmission. It doesn't fully answer the question, Srinivas. These are all dimensions of what is colonial consciousness with respect to the West, with respect to us. Both suffer from colonial consciousness. So, Bala, this question took longer uh, time spending than anticipated anyway. So, I think, uh, no, no, that's not a problem. No, I'm not, I'm not sorry. No. <laughs> so, uh, one of the uh, questions that has come, multiple people uh, got confused because uh, this uh, Satya and Sat, they're getting confused. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your comments on uh, truth, suddenly they're shifting it on then Sat. Chitananda, I mean, all these questions have come there. I think that, so my suggestion is if you can just take that, and that would be part of the future direction where you're traveling. One one dimension of the uh, direction probably would, uh, that's the only question that we can take probably, I guess. 
Okay. Let me begin with a statement which I hear often in India. Ekam sap It's normally translated as whatever that sap flower gets translated by some individual that different people say different things about. And normally what happens is that is to show the pluralism of India because they say it allows multiple truths. Yeah, many truths in India. We don't have a single truth. It's absolute rubbish. There are no one billion truths or ten billion truths. There's only one truth. Two plus two is equal to four in decimal arithmetic. The sum of angles of three angles of a triangle is 180 degrees in a two-dimensional space. And there is absolutely no way truth is different for different people. It's only if you're a three-dimensional space or n-dimensional space that the sum of the three angles of a triangle is not 180 degrees. Not otherwise. In two dimensions, the same thing everywhere. Greece, India, and so on. You can't fly in carpet, magic carpets. There is gravitational force. If you want to counteract that, you need energy. And no carpet is going to give you that. It's a magical carpet. In other words, there are no 100 million truths, there's only one truth. Indian notion of truth is very robust. It has got only one notion of truth. Not 100, we are not relatives. We never were. So, Ekam doesn't mean each has his own truths. No, it's not true. Truth is, for everyone, it's the same thing. But the sentence says something, not, it's not about truth, it's talking about subject. Ekam sat. They say all kinds of things in a multiple different ways. There's only one sat. Not exactly is this. Now, I don't enter into a deep Brahma Jignasa here. I mean, this is not the place to do that. Though we should do that someday. See, it, Indians make a very, very, very strong distinction between real and existence. I'll explain to you very soon what I mean. I'm using English words. Real picks up Existence is astitva, being there in multiple Ways. Now the West also, Western culture also, makes a distinction between the real and the existence. But they have a huge problem. Who? The Western culture. Why? Is it their God, biblical God, is also real? That is, he's outside to them, real means being outside the time and space. He's not in this world. This world is a world of existence. He's not here. But God has to work in this world. God has to be effective in the world. God has to do this or that in the world. He does it. Apart from sending his son here, there are who, who, who did miracles, etc. etc. God works, as they say, in mysterious ways in this world. Unfortunately, this world has a following property. If some object, whichever object is, 
has to work in this world, that is, have causal effect in this world, it must exist. Non-existent entities cannot have causal effect on this world. For example, if there are no ghosts, there is no way on earth ghosts are able to move objects in this world. Spirit, if it doesn't exist, it cannot do anything. So whatever works in this world, has effect in this world, must exist. And if it exists, it is one object amongst any number of other objects that exist in the world. Because God has to work in the world, God has to exist in the world as well. So there is a famous discussion, problem, of immanence and transcendence of God. God is immanent in this world, meaning he exists in the world. He's transcendent, meaning he's beyond world, beyond space-time. Beyond world does not mean outside earth, beyond cosmos. He does not exist, that's what it means, outside space-time. So he, there he is a transcendent, but he has to work in the world, he's immanent. So how can God be both transcendent and immanent? For millennia, they have been thinking about it, asking questions about it, because if God did not work in this world, God did not exist in the world, if God would not exist at all, oh my God, what happens to Christianity, Judaism and uh, Islam? It's a catastrophe. But here is an interesting historical point. Whether God exists or not is a question that emerges, which is a Jacob 17th, 18th century France? 16th century. No, it's late, late 17th, but mostly 18th century. 18th, okay. Yeah. First time the question of atheism, that is, does God exist or not? First time emerges in 18th century France, early 18th century, late 17th century. Until then, it's unthinkable to ask the question, does God exist? There is a famous proof called, there's a famous uh, holy man called Saint Anselmus, uh, Saint Anselmus. He is supposed to have produced the first ontological proof for the existence of God. Ontology means things that exist in the world. So he is supposed to have developed the proof for the existence of God. And that's 13th century, 12th century. But if you go to read that book, it's not a talk about existence of God. He doesn't ask the question, does God exist? But what he asked this fantastic thing to discuss, I won't go there. But the point is, he didn't ask the question. He did not, he could not. Because till the 18th century, it never occurred to the 17th century, 18th century, it never occurred to anybody to ask the question, does God exist? There is a statement in the Bible. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But as a fool, and nobody took him seriously. Only a fool can say that, nobody says it. Because God exists, exists obviously. Look at the nature, look at human beings, God exists. So only 17th, 18th century discussion begins about the existence of God. Until then, it was very clear God was real, God was the truth, and so on. But a problem begins because God has also to exist here. He is an, must be an object in the universe. Therefore, you should ask the question, does God exist? Is there a God? If you go to Amazon, 
type existence to find all the books on existence. 99% is about God's existence, not about what existence means. Does God exist? So existence question, in fact, is discussed about whether or not God exists. That's the most important question. Why does this happen? But when, once God is one object like any other, this is a coffee cup, this is God. That's two objects. So God must be limited, God must be finite, God must have properties. No, 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 that's not possible because God is real, he is outside cosmos. But if he exists here, my friend, unfortunately, he must have these properties. So this is a very huge problem in, in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. What Indians did, they also did this thing, he made a real in existence. But they keep it completely separate. What level? It's almost mind-blowing when you realize the consistency of this way of thinking 3,000 years ago, which they sustained for at least 1,500 years. They said real and existence are different, meaning what? What is real? cannot exist. What exists is not real. How did they make that distinction? Well, they, they, what language did they use? Well, they said, the real, that is para. The unreal existing, that is apara. Between para and apara. Para doesn't exist, apara exists. But, here is an interesting thing because we are Indians, aren't we? They said they thought like this. Unlike the Semitic religions, we believe that the only thing that is there exists is a cosmos. Outside, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. So, if you want anything, if you want to access anything, you want to get anything, it must be in Apara, it must be in Yaha, it must be in Vishwa, it must be in Janat. It must be there, otherwise we can't access it, right? If an object is outside time and space, what's the point? Might be there, might not be there, what the hell? Doesn't do anything. So, they said they didn't put para outside time and space. But it does not exist. But they said human beings access para. I'll explain, I will make philosophical, I'll give you a very, very concrete example. That means we can access it. If we can access it, we can only access it in Apara, in Iha. So, they did not say Apara also exists in Para, then it become another object. No, no, no. Apara is, Apara is accessible in Apara. You can access, you can have entry, you can experience what does not exist in Apara. Now, this is nothing mysterious about it. Look, look at the language first. From our language, and how we do it also, in every culture does this. You see someone and you say, he, it's, I hope you know a little bit of Sanskrit. He has got virtues. He has got tejas. Yeah, tejas. However, not, not English tejas. Look at him. The tejas radiates. Look at the word tejas. Now, it is not a physical property. It's not a psychological property. Yeah? But you are accessing it. 
if it is a physical property, I should be able to say what it is, whether we do by the investigate or not. Psychological property could say that. No, watches, pages. Or in English, oh, he's a charismatic man. All right. What is his charisma? It's not a property of the body, it's not a property of his personality. But you see it, you experience it. And you say the person has charisma. You know, when that guy comes into the meeting, you can sense his presence. Presence is not psychological, biological, physiological, but you sense it. What the hell? What are you sensing? Sensing what is not there. It does not mean it's imaginative. It's something that can be accessed. It can even go to even more trivial level. You go to Starbucks or coffee day or whatever. And you have said it a number of times. Ah, today. Fantastic how coffee tasted. It was the same coffee, it's the same tongue, it's the same person, same hour, but today coffee ah, tasted. That, that is the taste. Tomorrow it does not, yesterday it did not. So what exactly is it? You tasted. You tasted something that didn't exist, but you had accept. You go to your house, oh, this house is a character. It has character. <laughs> I was having a character. Yes, we experience it, we sense it, we access it. In other words, infinite number of ways in our daily language, we talk about accessing things that do not exist. That does not mean we're hallucinating, does not mean we're imagining. No, we can access things that have no existence. So, Indian said, that is para. Para is that. What? Accessing what does not exist. Human beings do so, do so everywhere. And where is para? Where can you access it? In our para, of course, in Iha. That's the only place we have. That's the only thing we know. This is where you are born. This is where we die. Everything should happen here. So, then para is accessible in a para. Para is not a para. What, so, such when we say is para. Now, what the hell does that mean? If it does not exist, it doesn't have properties. Guna cannot have it. If it doesn't have properties, you can't distinguish it between two things. To distinguish any one object from another, they must differ in properties. If it's para, there are no properties, you can't distinguish. But if you want, but if you want to talk about it, how do you say? A comes up. There is no, nothing else like that. That's not mean there's one. Because mathematically, if there's one, there is two. If there's two, if there's three. Weak mathematical and strong mathematical induction. You can't say one and stop there. No, no, if there's one, there is two. If there's two, if there's three. So A comes up does not mean there's only one. There is nothing like so. So, ekamsa. There is nothing like para. There is only one, but one para. Okay, I'm not counting, but there is nothing else like that. Ekamsa. Vipraha bhudavadanti. What is it? How do you, how do you, how do you talk about it? This, this para. Well, why, why is this a problem? Because, you see, your language. 
is language of properties, forces, events, and so on. In other words, the language of existence. They can only talk about existence. They can't, even when you talk about non-existent entities, we talk about entities that could have existed but do not exist. Our language, there's no other, there's a full sign, ordinary language, whichever language, is language of existence. So, I can talk in different ways, using different languages of existence about the para. Again, it's not something, you can also make true claims about para. Very simple. If I say, para is blue, Sarika says para is yellow. Both are true. <laughs> Both are true. There are different ways of talking about it. But, so, or you can go the other way. Nechi Nechi argument. Pala, pala is neither long nor short. Pala is, pala is neither big, is neither fat nor thin. Pala is smaller than the atom but bigger than the cosmos. And so on and so on and so on. In other words, you can say, para is everything that does not have the properties of apa. Neti, neti. It is not this, it is not that, it is not this, it is not that. They are all true statements about para, true. So they are not bullshit. No, no, they are not. They give you knowledge. Yes, they do. What is knowledge do they give? They say, look, para is not para. To make you understand. So, ekansa. It means stairs. This is stupid. There are no multiple truths. And that's why different the story about blind men, ten blind men and the elephant. Same thing. You can describe it in different ways, using different ways of talking about existence. But para is not that. Same thing. Atma Brahma. Uh, sarvam Khalvidam Brahma, go, go wherever you want. None of them violate this condition. That is, para does not exist, but para is accessible in a para. So Indians are extraordinarily consistent. That is why, and look at the same thing. Atma is a para, which means what? It does not act in the world, it cannot. What is a person the property of Atma? He is not an agent. Atma doesn't do anything. If it was inexistent in the world, you don't have objects that don't do anything, you just kick them out. And that's what we in science do. What is this object? What is this particle doing? Nothing. We just postulate it, kick it off. You can't have objects that don't do anything, just hang around doing what? Nothing. And that's not possible. Nature doesn't allow that. We say we just kick it off. Indians don't say that. Atma is hanging around somewhere doing nothing. No, 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 no. Atma does not exist. But it's real. Atma is accessible, but does not exist. So, Atma is not an agent. Of course, it cannot be. Consistency, my friends, that's what Indian thought has. Nobody has said. Atma functions. This is Atma is a sakshi. It's a way of describing. 
But to be a Sakshi, you need eyes. You need brain to process the information. Otherwise, it must have a body. Come on. No, nobody, you, so, Atma Sakshi, so it plays the role of a Sakshi, etc. These are strategies of accessing Atma. You, when you see it, when you're interacting, don't you see somebody is watching from behind? Yeah, yeah, that's Atma. Does not mean Atma is watching you like this. It's a way of accepting Atma. In other words, if you, wherever you go, there's Advaitins, 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 you go wherever you want. Our thinking. And it's about human beings. It's not some deep metaphysical subject. No, no, no. It's our experience. Para apara is our experience, daily experience. It's talking about that. And it says, how is it possible for us human beings using these experiences in the world to become happy, have ananda, however you want from it? So this. Yeah, please. No, to give you some rest because you have been continuously talking. Yeah, yeah, I, I will add yeah. uh, some small uh, interventions here of the consequences mm -hmm. of what uh, till now Balu narrated. Now, so in a way, if you take that as para, so this sat, jnana, etc., they will all be part of para. That's first. And when we talk about satya, etc., in the language, they are property of the sentences. They talk about the things in this world. Now, if you look from this way, what Balu started off uh, saying that, you know, in Christianity also they make this distinction, but they have this problem that uh, God is outside and he has to come and do something in this world, etc. We have separated it. Now, we, we also actually have made it beautifully understandable in the sense that now Saraswati is always known as Paradevata. So, <laughs> so she doesn't come down. And when we have to bring our God somewhere because they can't exist, the only way that you do is you call it Aparavatara. So the, you bring, for example, Vishnu to Apara. So Rama is Aparavatara. So therefore he has all the properties. Like he has birth and he has death. Because everything that an object that exists in the world have is beginning and an end, birth and death, etc. All these things have come. So therefore Rama was born here, he died, Krishna was born here. This, he gets all the properties of Aparavatara. What is more fascinating is all these Aparavataras that we have, they are impossible creatures. I mean, it is impossible to see anybody acting in this world the way Krishna has done it. Or you can't have somebody like Narasimha born in this world. I mean, you cannot. In a, in a way, what Balu was describing is that even if you want to talk about, there is a way. So this Apara gives reference for people to look at Para. So it, you can't have this high... A serious, you know, textual understanding of what is this Sat, what is this Brahman, etc. But if you look at this Apara, so it is recognizable, Narasimha is recognizable, and Rama is recognizable, Krishna is recognizable, but there are also, you can't have such people. You can't have such creatures in the world. So therefore, you know that they don't exist. In the sense, they are Para. So in a way, Balu's uh, reference in the uh, text that he has given, that when Indians have actually communicated this knowledge to people, there is no dumping down, there is no vulgarization of science. In fact, they, they made it that even the most ordinary people could pick this thread and understand. So when somebody is using, you know, uh, Rama, Krishna, Puja, etc., they know 
hey, this is god i mean such a creature is not possible in this world i can't be that so in a way they are pointing towards para but which doesn't exist so in a way these ideas have been transmitted to ordinary uh, uh, people in a lang- in a, in a way that is comprehensible without sort of cutting down the the uh, the knowledge without simplifying it but it has been given in a way that people can follow it i have i said it correctly balu i mean to yeah but i just should, yeah absolutely but let me just add one or two things sure it becomes even more clear uh it is in the form of a question okay i have 15 20 minutes i spoke about para apara all these things you say i mean it's very difficult to understand it it's all philosophical and abstract absolutely right and now the introduction of uh, what is it what does it mean to be indian if you want to transmit this knowledge to a peasant who doesn't know anything about physics logic metaphysics and so on how do you communicate this para apara to that guy and that is what chaitra was talking about take someone like narasimha there is no way on earth on this earth that we know or maybe somewhere somewhere as extraterrestrial beings alien and so on forget that on earth you cannot have a creature which is half lion half man and live that possible at all also says it our experience also says it it cannot exist cannot exist but narasimha is we says an avatar not not a avatar is apara is is how vishnu comes as an avatar vishnu is not an avatar and look at how this prakrada and his father very is everywhere everywhere yeah is in this pillar yes break the pillar what does it mean it doesn't have one play apara is everywhere yes, of course it has to be why because it's para it's not confined to one object so it must be here it must be there it must also be in the pillar or outside the pillar doesn't matter what comes out half man half lion cannot exist of course para does not exist but by seeing it as narasimha you give access to a person of what para is in a para without using the word para without using the word apara and just one more thing look at all our statues in temples and any number of people who ask me why we have such a glee statues uh, for arms and tornadoes and, so and all kinds of stories have been spreading around for that and fine everybody has his own can his own story here is my answer to that question on the basis of what i said Look, if you are a consistent thinker, like Indians were, you must have some way of identifying something as para. Some way, like for example, Krishna, he can take any form. If there's blue and a peacock thing and a flute, we know it's Krishna. We have some confusion with between Parvati and Lakshmi. In Parvati or Lakshmi, I'm not very sure. But Saraswati, you know, because he's sitting with Vina, no problem. So Ishwara or Ganesha is related to the creatures. We know they are all paradigms. So what did they do? And that is why the most illiterate person in India go to their local temples. 
most of the times, though there are some exceptions here and there, all their bloody this thing has four arms. Four arms is impossible on earth. Four arms. It's not para, para. It is para. So I can give four arms. So they say we have to give four arms. And I was telling my Sanskrit friends the other day. I'm sure you'll have noticed this. Ganesha has four arms, right? Look at Bala Ganesha. He's only got two arms. None of you have ever, ever asked the question, how is it possible? Bala Ganesha has got only two, but when he grows up, he gets four. None of us ask it. But we recognize Bala Ganesha. We have no problems with it. And we recognize Ganesha. Two arms, four arms. Why do we not bother about it? Because it's not uparized. What the hell are you? It's, it's para. It's a way of recognizing, accessing para. It doesn't matter whether Bala Ganesha has already got two and Vridha Ganesha, he doesn't go Vridha, he remains Bala, but even though he's got four, that is why his stomach gets blown out and he uses a snake and runs on a mouse. Impossible things, all of them, of course. They have to be, because if it was not, they would exist in a para, then they are not Pradevatas. This is how a culture transmitted knowledge without dumbing it down. This, what you and I are discussing abstractly, para, a para peasant knows it. In India, electric peasant, because his temple goddess has got four arms. Are you not amazed? At this thinking process, how in God's name did they think about this? How in God's name did they transmit it? How in God's name did they take roots in Indian culture? Incredible consistency. The only place where I have seen it is in logic and in some mathematics and some theories in physics. Nowhere else, except this, of course. This consistency, 3,000 years ago, my God, how, where did they discuss? How did they do research? But they must have done it, because this is impossible without research. These are the results of research. This, my friends, is the Indian culture. And this is what is in danger. And this is what we you and me together we can re we can access it again because you're understanding it. this is what it means to use 21st century language to understand and we develop it not only for us for the whole of the world because we need it we need it very very bad that is the prospect this is the perspective you had the retrospect this is the prospect root, and it is the root of knowledge. I rest. So, I mean. <clears throat> 
i think we can uh, stop at this point in time because now from here we can't take any new thread it is impossible to take any more new thread because it takes uh, a lot of time to get into any of this new thread see but one thing that i wanted to reemphasize in the way in the way that we have summarized it from morning to uh, till now so the number of questions that uh, shrinivas had sent us i mean almost 85% of those questions have been addressed there is one segment of the questions which we could not take up because of the limitation of the time and as questions mm-hmm. came it took different different routes but this is precisely uh, where the research program is heading mm-hmm. there are large number of people in india and europe uh, uh, participating in it all kind of people there are muslims there are christians and people of different kinds sanskrit all disciplines you know they participated this is where uh, we are going ahead so we want uh, uh, people who have been uh, here with us from morning to join this process of thinking together because as balu pointed out this is the question of this incredible culture which is a danger today so we need to think about it seriously so with this university Uh, Chaitra ji, I thought we were going to go on till 6.15. <laughs> so, you know, even that little bit of time that is left, I really I don't want to let it go. <laughs> I'd like to listen. <laughs> continue listening to Balu. <laughs> of course, uh, beyond that as well. But, um, you know, I know you said that it's difficult to start a new thread. Um, but a, a lot of I don't know if this is appropriate because the kind of a subject that I'm broaching, I don't know if it is fit to be discussed after hearing Professor Balu speak the way he did. But is it possible to just touch upon the concept of Varna Sankara? That's my request. <laughs> All right. No, no, no. I, we are writing a book on it. It will be ready by June, July. and varna and varna center there are three articles written eight months ago since then thought has gone much further on manu varna sankara varna sankara in gita yeah so if you prom- the, if you promise me not to distribute it because much has changed so what there is to go for the looking part of the book and uh, that's going to be written if you want it i can send those three articles remember it eight nine months ago since then thoughts have evolved let it The, the, the crucial ideas have not changed there we address it is about varna sankara especially about two shlokas from manu one shloka from gita if you want a discussion about it, i'll send those articles but not here i mean people want to go home here no yeah I but probably you just if you want it, I, i will send uh, in next half an hour you will have it it's ready but the book is getting great it's about 90% ready it's going to look at what varana is what varana sankara is and it's a hypothesis that can be tested not by going to text and finding out the meaning of this or that word in this world today no, but uh, but people who wanted to sort of get a glimpse of what it is so we had done uh, a year back or so uh, a workshop in bangalore so part of the roe research foundation how to read indian text there are seven part videos and there is one set of video which actually 
sort of sketches the outline of uh, varnasankara but this was probably one and a half years back or so ideas have evolved further but the point is you will get a glimpse of which direction how do we read it i mean also the yagnavalka maitri discussion i mean all these things have been dealt with and there is also a segment of the video which talks about how do we read the parts of uh, idea of uh, varnasankara within gita and some other issues one could refer to them so that that gives you some initial glimpse till this book uh, comes out there is some food to think so that is what we is it the kannada chaitra ah yes that's unfortunate yeah only kannadiga can access it okay so you have to subtitle it uh, chaitra ji you have a lot of work to do yeah we'll get it done probably after after lockdown we will get it done yeah. okay uh the other okay. question was, there are people uh, who want it who ask addresses uh, etc contact ashino he'll take care of it or contact chai yeah the other question i was going to ask and i was hoping yeah, probably would be broached uh during the discussion here um was about the research uh, your group is doing on uh, aspects which uh, relate to uh so called you know religious freedom uh the sabarmala judgment uh, issue uh the issue of uh, you know constitutional morality <laughs> right uh and the history of uh, uh, the constitution writing itself i i have read uh, uh, anil rao's uh, master's thesis and it was brilliant uh, i was telling uh, um chaitra ji that i was going to do an interview uh, because i i thought the way he presented his ideas i have not seen anybody else do it like that uh, and uh, chaitra ji told me that he has done it uh, with the guidance from um, professor uh, jacob uh, de ruer so um is it possible to sketch a little bit about uh, you know what is happening in that direction i know <laughs> we just have a few minutes left but so just to get a feel for what's happening you know that's the only reason i'm asking <laughs> mm. well i'm tempted to give the same kind of answer we we're working on a book which will come out hopefully or will be ready next year and it's again very difficult to begin to summarize anything about it so my suggestion would be if people want to know about this that they read anil's thesis for the time being because i i think i wouldn't be able to sum it up in 5 minutes or 10 minutes uh, i don't think it's it's appropriate to do that no. so i i i suggest people as a kind of appetizer or teaser they read anil's thesis knowing that next year we'll work on a book on this theme but the book is going to come out on indian constitution not on constitution morality it will be shot down uh, <laughs> but on indian constitution uh, reflections on it there'll be something coming out on a political comparative political thought there the uh, so i mean the research group is going to produce in the course of hopefully Uh, next two years quite a lot of this material will come out some uh, for academic men for academics some men for non academics uh, but they are all on the 
not just plans, concrete work is going on about these things. On literature, uh, for example, Arohi students are working really wonderful, doing really wonderful things on literature and uh, relations with the colonial consciousness and so on. So different kinds of research, they'll start flowing. But don't ask for summary, Srinivas. You know why? I, this is my favorite example. You know Kalekai Unde? You know what it means? You know, he has this, you're a Telugu man. Are you Telugu? Yeah, yes, I am Telugu. Are you a habit, yeah? But, but, but the groundnuts you make round, round balls which are sweet with yes. jaggery. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, you yeah. have it. Yeah. You have yeah. it because every time I go to Andhra Pradesh, I eat Nippat and Kalekai. So there's a you do very it, difficult do it very well. to uh, break them. Yeah. Yeah, lift up. Wait. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that is where I was coming to. So if a baby of six months, which doesn't have teeth, wants kalekai unde, what do you do? <laughs> you say, just wait until you get good teeth and you have used binaka to toothpaste to make it strong. Only then I'll give you kalekai unde. So let's just wait, you'll get it. But you all want it now, not possible. You can't eat it when you're six months old. <laughs> Definitely not nippat also. It, it, it's, it's not possible to bite. Okay. You will get it. Okay. So now, I mean, this is, uh, this has been fantastic, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we knew that it is impossible to give a deep understanding of everything you've been doing for the past 40 years. And it's not just the time, but the number of people, uh, you know, the, the various thinkers and researchers that you have, you know, um, who are pursuing this uh, program across the world. It's impossible to summarize in a short duration like this, you know, breaking for lunch in between <laughs> and even trying to you know, not get enough time for that. So the primary purpose of this is just to get a glimpse, probably through an example, uh, so that, you know, people can get a taste for it, you know, rather than see all of it, like in the Vivaha Bojanambu, I don't know, you've seen that uh, song. It's, it's yeah, oh, yes. Maya Bajar, Kannada Sinimaisal. <laughs> Vivaha Bojanambu, Vichitra Tailamambu. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we, we can, so instead of seeing all of that, you know, probably we, you have just given a taste of one laddu. <laughs> and then we can guess how all the other, uh, you know, eatables are going to taste. Uh, so this is only to... Um, encourage people to pursue on their own, uh, you know, taking this as clues uh, for a, a new kind of a thinking, uh, understand the complexities involved in things which they thought is straightforward, right? And also uh, get an opportunity to pursue the specific program, you know, research program that is being pursued by, uh, you know, Professor Balagangadra's uh, students and many of them are now professors uh, and have different uh, centers that have been established in Europe, in India. I've had a chance to attend one workshop conducted by uh, Duncan Jalki and Sufia Patan in Ujure. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. They do it every summer. So I, I'm, I'm sure Arohi uh, Foundation also uh, does it in India. So for those people in India, I definitely encourage them to um, look up uh, these two organizations, contact them and uh, get an opportunity, uh, uh, yeah, create an opportunity for themselves to uh, pursue this line of thinking. Harikiran uh, Garu, are you still here with us or uh, are you? Ah, maybe he's not. 
Okay. Oh, he's there. He's there. He's there. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, ah, yeah. Hari Kanjar. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't. want this to end but i guess you know <laughs> i can't keep speaking like this <laughs> maybe if you also say a few words and you know uh, thank and probably then we'll have to uh, hit that leave meeting button <laughs> actually uh, balu i was just so fascinated in between i was just so transfixed with how you were talking and i was um, i just now tweeted saying that uh, today the indic intellectual dark web is born and um, <laughs> there is a new movement in the us of all uh, intellectuals who are anti this uh, leftists and social justice warriors uh, uh ruben and jo- uh, jordan peterson douglas murray some of uh, you know all, all the uh, uh, all the people who are against this uh, leftist movement and uh, eric wenson has given this name as a uh, uh, intellectual dark web so there is a momentum uh, building against this uh, postmodernism and postcolonialism and this all this uh, theories that uh, the leftists are throwing against us so i think after today with more than 200 people listening throughout i think the critical mass uh, of people who are reversing and who are looking at the way you are looking at things i think i i would feel that we should continue and uh, continue to engage and take this uh discussion and give this moment and i had spoken to chaitra ji about um, deepening our engagement and i'm very honored that uh, you have uh, accepted that and i really look forward to taking that uh, forward uh, in just in terms of uh, the research and legacy partnership uh, that uh, i had mentioned to uh, chaitra that's that's for me um the uh, the crestual uh, for me uh personally uh as and 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 this journey of uh, deepening engagement with uh, venerable scholars like you what we call as boni you're the first scholar i i uh, i'm doing this so i'm really really grateful and i will interact with chaitra ji and and uh, take this forward thank you so much yeah before before we end just one word from sarika jacob sara chaitra I really would like to thank you, Hari Kiran. It's a wonderful opportunity you've given, not just for this conference, and for your proposal. And I really think we should work, work whatever we can, we contribute. We have a beautiful state. If you don't know about, you know, squirrels are supposed to have helped Rama build Ram Sethu. Yeah, we, we call them Anil, Anil Sethu, Anil Squirrel. Seva, you understand. So that's all we can do, all of us. and uh, so you want more squirrel i'm on more squirrel we'll go and carry you have two small stones fine that's all we can do with the whole can do but let's work together let's carry forward and uh, thank you very very much for they all for i hope what's going to happen and for what has happened for the retrospective and let's hope one day our prospective will become the retrospective yes If you can leave ah. that wrong, that would be wonderful. But then I'm going to contact uh, Yama and Ganesha, phone them a little bit, and find that it's possible to do. And I come to an arrangement about it. Doubt <laughs> it, because they don't have 5G there as yet. So when it comes, we'll see. All right, we can take some okay. help. Thank you very much for all of you and for the people whose faces I have not seen. Uh, but then. Try and contain your shock of seeing my face. 
You know, it's not exactly, it's what I call the missing link between the human beings and the ape. Uh, I'm somewhere there. And today, Hari Kiran decided to join me. First, I said no, but I'm now willing. Two uh, missing, missing links will prove that biology is wrong. One missing link, you can say it's So, we have two of us. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Chaitraji, thank you. Tarej, Sarikaji, Jakobji, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.